Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. In this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken, and maybe we stumble upon some answers together. Let me deal with an interesting piece of business before we get this week's episode up and running. I've been asked if we plan on setting up a forum or a chat room or something like that for bedheads to get together and talk each other through all things COVID-19 and coronavirus, because it's causing serious issues for people's sleep. People are stressed. People are worried. Some people are downright afraid. And they're looking for a place to turn where they can have a non-alarmist, fact-based conversation. And non-alarmist and fact-based is very scarce on the internet, and it is especially scarce when it comes to sleep. If I hear one more person tell me that taking 25 milligrams of melatonin every night is going to help me sleep better, I, I think I might have a cardiac incident. Um, so honestly, that is something that I had considered when we first set up our website back in the summer of 2019. We really quickly got overwhelmed with spammy signups and bots from the other side of the world, and we just decided it wasn't worth the security risk. But that said, I'm going to spend the week doing some research to see if there's a good tool out there that we can use. And I'll let you know at the beginning of next week's show, because right now it makes sense to have somewhere where people can have an actual sensible adult conversation about their sleep, where people aren't pushing products and ridiculous ideas uh, on other people. So let me think about this one. Feedback, while we're on that subject, has a lot to do with this week's show, too. Um, you might know that there's information on our website that I'll let you know about uh, for how to leave feedback or questions for our panel of sleep experts, as an example. So we get a message from Heidi in Toronto. We played it for you on last week's episode of the show. She was asking if we would do an episode on the relationship between menopause and sleep. And that's where this week's show comes from. Don't worry, men. There's a lot of information in here for you, too, not the least of which is how to make things easier for the women in your life. But there are also a lot of commonalities between men and women and sleep and aging and hormone shifts and all kinds of things like that. Plus, we veer a little bit off course as well in the course of the episode. And there's a lot of still great information to put in here if you're not uh, someone who is menopausal or knows someone who is. We're going to talk more about all that later on. Right now, let's get you to this week's guest. Her name is Dr. Sarah Nowakowski. She's an associate professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and a research health scientist at the Michael E. DeBakey Veterans Affairs Medical Center. She's the foremost expert in America on this subject, and here she is now. Sarah, I have uh, occasionally let this slide, and uh, the two times before in the history of the show when I have gone without asking this first question, man, do I hear about it from the listeners after. So I have to ask, because everybody gets this, how did you sleep last night? Ah, very interesting question. Um, not super great, actually. Uh, typically, I am a pretty good sleeper, but I think because of the stress with what with everything going on with uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus, I um, have noticed myself and my um, family sleeping a little less well than we normally do. And that's the interesting thing as, and, and I'm not sure when you're listening to this, but yeah, we're recording it uh, the last, toward the last week of March. And, and so COVID-19 coronavirus, very much front burner for everyone. Um, do you have, a go-to that you, you know, if you're, ha if you're facing a night when sleep's not showing up for you, is there stuff that you do? 
Yeah, this is great because this uh, jumps right into what I recommend. And this is kind of my long-term maintenance plan for patients that have insomnia. I follow the same instructions because we all have a, a night from here or there that's bad. Basically, my biggest tips are don't kind of worry or stress or work at your sleep, that it has to unfold naturally. So if it's not happening, I will do what I tell patients to do normally, which is get out of bed, do reading or something relaxing until I'm feeling sleepy again, and then return to bed, and then still maintain that same wake-up time the next day. Um, if anything, it's never about tonight. It's about tomorrow and trying to build for better sleep. So by um, having a little bit of sleep deprivation, it actually increases sleep pressure and your ability to sleep. So I'm setting myself up for a better night tonight, hopefully. Well, and that's interesting, too, because when we're sitting there and, you know, the clock on the wall starts to sound like the same clock that Jack Bauer used to follow on 24, where like every second goes by and it's boom, boom, and it echoes in your head. And we all start thinking we all start on that same spiral, right, where we all go, oh, I'm not going to sleep tonight. And then I'm going to have a lousy day tomorrow. And then I'm not going to sleep the night after that. And I'm not going to sleep the whole rest of the week. And then I'm not going to sleep the rest of the month. It's, it's easy to go down that rabbit hole, I guess, for everybody, right? It is. And I, uh, I think what's kept me from ever being a true insomniac and um, fully having a problem long term is that I just remind myself that this is temporary. I try not to catastrophize about it, that I can get through the next day. You know, I, I can make it work and, and get through even a couple of days of little sleep uh, and then it works itself out. So catastrophize I, is a great word for exactly what so many people do. And catastrophizing, I think, is an element probably of orthosomnia that has come up on this show a number of times as well. I mean, there's so much that goes into just putting your head in a place where you can set up for a good night's sleep. Now, I mean, so far, this adventure on, on this show has been me trying to resolve my own sleep problems, which I mean, quite possibly date back to as near as I can figure out the early 1970s. But me aside for a second, um, I got, first of all, I got called on the carpet um, by uh, Sharon Handy, who runs uh, a terrific podcast called Boring Books for Bedtime, where she uh, every week picks a new book and reads it in the most boring delivery possible. And it's things like she told me that she actually recorded an episode of her podcast where she reads the terms and conditions for iTunes. And she reads it in his very boring delivery that's designed to relax you to sleep. Um, but when I had her on the show a few weeks back, she said, how come you've never done an episode yet of your show that deals with sleep and how difficult sleep can be for women with menopause? And sure enough, on last week's episode, because we take listener phone calls every week and we run them past a panel of sleep experts. Um, Heidi called, she's in Toronto and she said the same thing. She said, look, I'm in the middle of, you know, the change myself and it's presenting all kinds of obstacles for me getting a good night's sleep. I would love to talk to an expert about what to do about it. So then I reach out to my friend and a frequent guest on this show, Dr. Michael Grandner. And I said, Michael, who is the smartest person in America when it comes to menopause and sleep. And he responded in like 10 seconds. And he said, Oh, hands down, you have to talk to Sarah Nowakowski. <laughs> so, I appreciate that. <laughs> so walk me through this. I mean, because menopause, even, even just if you look at only menopause, we're talking about tens of millions of women, even if you only look at North America. And I think about the audience for this show where 
they tell me we're among the most popular podcasts in the UK and Germany and Australia and all, all these different places. So I can only think of how many people we're talking to when we even just boil it down to let's just deal with people that are in menopause. Right. So the average age of the transition is 52. And so you can imagine now with technology and medical care that um, we anticipate most women living post-menopause for about 30 years. And we all, as women, we all have to go through, through it. So that is quite a number of women. And so in menopause, then there is the subset of uh, menopausal women who are suffering from insomnia and, and help me get my head around the numbers for that. Yeah. So actually they're pretty high compared to, you know, earlier and younger life. Now for women in general, women have a uh, report, a higher rate of insomnia than men. Um, and then it goes up, uh, during the, the perimenopausal transition, um, it, it can be anywhere. There's, depending on how people define menopause, it can be anywhere from, you know, 26 to 52% of women are reporting sleep problems. It's one of the most typical, um, I would say within the top three or the top five symptoms of uh, the menopausal transition that, that women report along with hot flashes um, and, and a few other, you know, symptoms. Now, is there a conversation to be had here about causation? I mean, does the menopause cause the insomnia? Does the insomnia contribute to the menopause? How do, how do those play together? Yeah, we have a lot of trouble figuring that out of what is exactly causal. We kind of hypothesize it's a, a bunch of things going on. It's like the perfect storm. So for one thing, uh, women are aging, right? So they're getting older and we know sleep changes with age, Um Another thing, um, you know, body weight starts to change. Um, menopause tends to be the great equalizer in terms of health. So that's when uh, estrogen is very protective of things. Um, you know, we have less uh, cardiovascular symptoms, um, less sleep apnea. Once women hit uh, menopausal transition the, and, and those hormones start to um, go down, then we start to catch up on these other things. So it could be related to um, medical conditions. It could be another sleep disorder like sleep apnea. Um, it could be uh, some women are having hot flashes, although not every woman having hot flashes reports having um, sleep problems. Um, so, but that is a contributor is, is the hot flashes, especially if they're happening nocturnally at night, just the hormones themselves. So there's, uh, multiple causes. It's, it's fairly complex, which is why it's been hard to study. Um, but, but we kind of think it's a contributing factor of, of multiple things going on. But even just on their own, the hot flashes can wake you up, right? Right. So it doesn't wake everybody up. And actually, I did a study. It was um, NIH funded, federally funded study. And we looked at, so I do a lot of behavioral work called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And so we looked at this intervention in um, women that were experiencing nocturnal nighttime hot flashes as, um, as well as insomnia. And we found that we can actually get women to, um, if we can improve their sleep quality and the depth of their sleep, sometimes they sleep through the hot flash. If not, we can get them um, going back to sleep quicker. So, so it has been shown to work in that as well. But hot flashes, yes, definitely can impact in, in different ways. You know, some women experience a lot of um, sweating at night. And so we kind of um, 
I think like what I do with all patients is I tailor it to them. Like what is going on in their life and what things are bothering them. So if you're sweating a lot, you know, what's your room temperature like? Are you wearing sweat wicking? Could you put another pair of pajamas like right near your bed? So a lot of kind of just um, realistic things for, for each person. I'm assuming that because, I mean, as a person who's had an interesting um, relationship with sleep for closing in on 50 years now, um, I know the toll that insomnia has taken on me. I assume that for someone who not only gets to couple insomnia with menopause, that on some levels, I'm sure can be devastating. Right. So, I mean, there's so many things going on. Um, during that time, people are usually, you know, even for myself at kind of an elevated point of your career where you have a lot of stress and, and things going on with work. You're balancing sometimes older aging parents or, or uh, maybe a sick partner. Um, sometimes you have kids or kids in college and empty nests that you're dealing with. So, you know, a lot of life stressors also going on. And then, yeah, I mean, what we see is, as I said, age 52 is about the transition that can go on anywhere, which this is going to hopefully not alarm your listeners too much, but it, it can go on for, you know, eight years, you know, an average of eight years of just of that transition. Once you reach postmenopause, that doesn't end your insomnia. In fact, we see higher rates of insomnia in postmenopausal women after you've had, you're, you're kind of done with your fluctuations. The definition of postmenopause is 12 plus months of uh, no menstrual period. So once you reach that point, congratulations, you're postmenopause. However, the insomnia takes on a life of its own, as I'm sure it does with, with other people and other um, causes that bring it about um, based on behavioral and, and other things. And, and, um, we know that this group um, often reports worse problems, and they actually report taking sleep medications more often than other groups. Um, I kind of hypothesize that's because at that point, um, the, the good thing about menopause is, you know, it kind of puts your own health at the forefront. If your kids are getting older, you, you don't have to... Um, you know, be caring for them as much anymore or worrying about them disturbing your sleep. And so you can actually um, use sleep medications and hypnotics to try to get a good night's sleep. I don't think that's the answer long term, but um, we certainly see uh, people trying to do that. Is is this a scenario where, you know, let me let me back step back for a second. I think probably a lot of people and this may be consistent with your experience too, um, myself among them avoid getting their sleep evaluated by a professional because, you know, we've been sleeping since the dawn of time. And in theory, it's one of a very, very few things that all 7 billion people on the planet have in common is we all sleep. Um, and, and so people, I think, have this sense of, I should be able to do this. It's probably because of this or that. And, and they start trying to figure it out for themselves. Is that also similar among this population where maybe they assume that the insomnia is just is not related to the menopause is that a tie that people make automatically are there does insomnia i guess i guess what i'm working at here is does insomnia feel different for someone with menopause than it does for someone without or is it all just uh insomnia that's a very interesting, good question of like how people, so insomnia, um, according to, you know, people like myself that um, are 
sleep providers, we think of insomnia very much like we think of something like pain. It's subjective, right? So it's based on your own report and your own experience. And it's hard. We have tests, you know, these sleep studies that that can measure things and see your sleep continuity or how long you're sleeping. Um, But it's really based on the patient report and the patient frustration with it that um, is really what kind of um, really makes insomnia. Is it is it kind of different, qualitatively different in menopause? I mean, I think there's different things going on. Sure. Like I I mentioned some of the the life things. Um, It it could be going on for more years. So, but is that different than what you're experiencing? If you've been experiencing it since the 1970s, you know, like, is it any different than uh, a woman that's started in her fifties, but has been experiencing it for many years? Um, I don't know. I don't find that with patients. I mean, as a, as a person who has no expertise in this whatsoever, I'll, I'll give you my personal example and, and see if, if that can help clarify it a little bit. I mean, so when, when I went for my first, uh, sleep lab here mm-hmm. in, in Toronto, we discovered that I had, and, and I love throwing this number out just for the fun of it sometimes. And I haven't used it on the show in quite some time. So, uh, it's overdue for a comeback. We discovered that I had a, um, a periodic limb movement index of 82. Oh. There's the and I love that reaction. Thank you. It's a it's mm-hmm. a varying reaction from everybody who does what you do for a living, but they all give me some different version of wow. Um, so for me, so for if in case this is your first episode ever of the snooze button, uh, a, a, a periodic limb movement index of eighty two meant that eighty two times per hour, or roughly every forty or forty five seconds, I would kick violently in my sleep. And so that was one of the first things that when I went to my sleep lab, my doctor said, okay, we got to take care of this problem first, and I bet there'll be a massive improvement in your sleep. So I wonder if there's anything that comes along with the package of menopause that might lead someone to believe, oh, this is just part of the part of the part of the ride, where actually it should be maybe one of the signals that we need to get our sleep evaluated next. Certainly, I think that's a great idea. I love that you are doing this podcast and educating, you know, the public about this, that um, take those things seriously. I mean, having periodic limb movements and uh, having your sleep that disrupted is is not a good thing. Sleep apnea is, they kind of say it's like the silent killer, right? Like you, sometimes patient doesn't even know themselves, but it's their spouse that's jabbing them in the ribs when they're snoring. So um Certainly, if you have a sense, it's, it's not normal. If, um, you know, you, the definition of insomnia is um, greater than three nights a week of sleep disruption. Um, that could be trouble falling asleep, uh, staying asleep in the middle of the night, or early morning awakenings where you're unable to return to sleep, but it's not your normal time to get up. Followed by a daytime consequence the next day. That could be anything, irritability, mood. A lot of times for, for the women, it might be irritability and mood fatigue, you know, um, a lot of times we we find memory and concentration and decision-making to be impacted. That goes on for a period of three months. It's considered insomnia disorder. So um, if you're experiencing those symptoms and it's bothersome, yeah, there's things we can do. So many people don't know about the the work we do, but um, the work, um, the treatment I do, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is really considered the first line of treatment and it helps Uh, eight out of 10 people that includes people with menopause, with hot flashes, with cancer, with chronic pain. So um, at the very least, I tell, I see almost in hundred percent of my patients, we can at least mitigate this and get you sleeping better than when you came in. So, so it's definitely worth, um, 
Although getting back to your original question about these women, I think they actually, like I said, I think it's a time in their lives where um, they feel that they're more in control of their own health. They're paying more attention to it because something significant is happening. We know that we're supposed to go in more often for um, same with men, you know, colonoscopies or different things that, that come up, mammograms. So it's a time where you're starting to focus on your body and the symptoms. And just like your listeners uh, are telling you like, hey, why didn't you do one on menopause? We hear a lot, a lot of women. This is a vocal group that has no problem at least um, describing these symptoms in my um, experience. Interesting. So when we talk about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for menopausal insomnia. Talk to me about what's involved in it. And I mean, we could also probably get into a conversation that's a little more time specific about how CBT uh, evolves when people are being advised to stay in their homes unless it's absolutely critically necessary that they leave. But put that aside just for a second and talk to me about how that process goes. What, what, what am I going to experience if that's my next step. Yeah, I'll tell you about kind of the general. I've been doing, you know, general CBTI for um, probably like 20 years. So, um, so I'm actually very interested in how we adapted to these other populations. So the, the, the current experience of um, being trapped in your house is very interesting to me of how we have to adapt our sleep. But generally walking you through what, what normally happens is that someone will come in um, similar to your experience and we'll do an evaluation. And so for me, that's usually about a 60 minute uh, evaluation where I'm just talking to the person and getting a sense of their symptoms. The big thing I do is get a sense of their 24 hour day, their habits. What does their sleep look like at night? And, and what are all their daytime habits to what's going on during the day? Cause that impacts night. Um, I ask about those other things. So for periodic limb movements, I would ask, you know, um, do you notice kicking at night or are your bed sheets ruffled? Um, uh, Often what goes with that is RLS. So do you feel creepy crawly sensations in your legs as bedtime approaches? Um, And does that go away with movement? So I'm asking a lot of verbal questions to get a really good sense. Do they know what kind of brought this on for them? Was there anything? Do they know night to night what is waking them or is it nothing? Do they lie in bed? Do they get out of bed? Are they staring at the ceiling, stressing about sleep? So I'm really trying to get a sense of that. Um, After that, usually for me, it's typical. It's about four sessions. So CBTI is pretty quick. Um, I tell people like you've had this for 20 years. So can you um, invest just eight weeks of your life? And usually we can start seeing improvements within that. um, Usually it's session two, because that's when I'll give people kind of the meat and potatoes of what CBTI and my recommendations are. After session one, I'll send them home with a sleep diary to track their sleep. So that's like a sleep log of how long did it take you to fall asleep? Um, what time did you get into bed? Uh, were you up in the middle of the night? Asking them a series of questions. They do that every day for a period of a week or two. They bring that back. And then I plug all that information into a spreadsheet that um, can help us look at their averages. And we set their sleep schedule based on that. So that session two is where I give them most of the recommendations. And followed by then, then we'll 
do some some relaxation and kind of cognitive restructuring around your your feelings about sleep um, and and so forth. So um, so it's actually pretty quick, and I've had really good success. So um, definitely something people can do it them themselves with self management programs if they you know know what to be doing. Um, but a lot of times people like to be kind of walked through it and and. I think two brains are better than, than one. So we can come up with the exact plan of, well, what do you do if you're not asleep and do you get out of bed? What are you going to do during that time? And so we can kind of create a plan together. Is there a certain element uh, as, as we talk about the impact of COVID-19 on all of this? Uh, I mean, I assume the face-to-face portions of this have moved into Skype calls and, and things of that nature, or do, right. do things kind of get put on the back burner for a while? It's a little of both. So I do, I am uh, a clinician too. So I see patients for insomnia in a sleep medicine clinic. And um, what we've moved towards in the past week or two, uh, I'm at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, what we have moved towards is trying to move as much as we can to telehealth. Um, so I have been, I just started my first um, few phone calls last week and it has worked out fantastic. I, I actually would love to see, you know, a, a positive of this that, um, you know, insurance starts to cover it more and we can just move that way for everybody. Aside from this going on, both uh, myself had found it very pleasant and the patient was like, oh, I don't have to drive. Usually driving into Houston is a pain or I'm sure Toronto is, is a pain to drive into. Parking is hard. They have to pay fees to park. And she's like, just in the time it takes. So uh, both from the provider perspective and the patient perspective, we are really liking these um, telephone or we can do kind of Zoom or Skype where I can share a screen. Sometimes I like to show patients graphs or graphs of their sleep diaries of like what their sleep looks like. And so I'll be able to do that with video to home. So so we're working on that as well. So so I've had a pleasant experience in terms of clinical work. I know it's been uh, pretty stressful for people to be at home, but I but I um, think there are eventually some benefits that that could be changing the way we are doing things outside of the box. It's kind of forcing us. So, And so if we're in the middle of this ourselves, or if someone that we care about is in the middle of um, menopausal insomnia, it's not, I mean, first of all, all is not lost. It's like everything else. There's, if, if we're willing to put the work in, we can get there. But is, is it, it sounds like a relatively short commitment. You said eight weeks start to finish until we see some results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, and it depends. Like if somebody's on, you know, several sleep medications and their goal is to get off those medications, I might see them a couple more times because we'll go very slow at kind of tapering them off their um, hypnotics or other medications that they're taking. But generally, yeah, the course is pretty quick. Within a week or two of starting it, you should start seeing some benefits. I will say at first, I always warn all my patients that my goal is to actually kind of build your sleepiness and that sleep pressure. So you may I consider it like sleep boot camp or kind of ripping off the bandaid. You're, um, it's, a, it's a commitment. It's, um, and you may have heard some of these things from um, Dr. Gradner before, but uh, it's like remodeling your kitchen where it's short-term pain for long-term gain. We, we, we're going to kind of play with your sleep a little bit, um, might make you feel a little sleepier at first, but in the long term, you're going to have a much better. I mean, I love this work because it's very short-term. It's not like I consider sleep a pillar of health. Um, I've done studies where it is it, it, um, shown to impact your immune system and your health. And so um, 
just the fact that we can build that base just like we do with diet nutrition, but it's not as much of a commitment as, uh, you know, you having to run or exercise for the rest of your life or really think about your diet every day for the rest of your life. Sleep will, sleep will kind of go on autopilot. Uh, and that's the beauty of, of the work I do. Well, and it's it's interesting that you call it one of the pillars of health because um, that's the same terminology used by uh, another guest that's been on this show, uh, Dr. Liz Stanley, uh, who has a, a ridiculously good book called Widen the Window, and and it names sleep as sort of one of those pillars that will help you become more resilient and make you better able to deal with stress and stressful situations, deal with trauma and all of those sorts of things. And I guess maybe it's because it's something that we all do. And if, you know, eventually you will fall asleep. And so maybe, maybe because sleep can be such a low effort activity can be, um, maybe we just underestimate the value that's there waiting for us if we could just figure out how to maximize it. Right. I mean, it's like a lot of things like, um, mindfulness and meditation, the power of breath, of just breathing and reducing your stress. It's such an easy thing, but because it's so easy, it's often overlooked or because sleep for a lot of people unfolds naturally and you don't really put too much thought into it until it starts becoming problematic. Um, It's just one of those things that we all take for granted, even myself at times, you know, you just uh, take for granted, but it really, I think uh, we're showing more and more research to show how it impacts so many areas of, of health and, and well-being. You brought up sleep medications and I want to throw you, I, I want to put you on the spot for one thing in particular, because part of the reason that I started this project in the first place, um, not only was to fix my own sleep, but because as I was looking around online, which unfortunately everybody does, right? They ask Dr. Google first. Um, I started discovering that, you know, there were certain commonalities where people who were having trouble sleeping were all just going for this, or they were all just going to try that. And I thought, you know what, rather than let people just randomly experiment with all these different things, let me experiment with all the different things. And I'll tell you which things worked for me and which things didn't. And that might help you know, lessen the roller coaster ride for some people. But I'm walking through Costco the other day, uh, and this isn't a slant against Costco or anything. They're they're, uh, lovely people. But I'm walking through the pharmacy section at Costco, and I see a giant... A bottle, it, you know, I would have needed a whole separate shopping cart just for this bottle of pills. Um, it was a 10 milligram dose of melatonin. And I, I look at all the people who seem to think that if I just start jamming down melatonin like it's M&Ms, my sleep will be fixed. Talk to me about what I guess some in the sleep world have come to call vitamin M. That's not the answer. Shocking. If it were that easy, wouldn't everybody be doing it and you wouldn't have this podcast right now? <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, you're right. If there was a magic bullet, then yeah, everybody's sleep would be great. We'd all be banging out our seven to nine hours a night. Everybody be getting their 20% and three sleep and Bob's your uncle. And I wouldn't have a job. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'm kind of grateful it doesn't work, but feel feel bad for others. So yeah, a little bit about melatonin, which I'm sure you've talked to other people about, but it um, we more think of it as kind of a chronotherapy or can, can help with your circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm is, um, circadian means 24, 24 hour, pretty much everything in our body 
is on this 24 hour clock. So we have a body clock sleep, you know, your, your blood pressure, even how we metabolize medication, our appetite, it all has kind of this, this rhythm. And so people can be delayed or advanced and the rhythm could be a little off compared to kind of societal and where they want it to be like your typical 11 to seven. So we do tend to, to use it for that. That's the only thing where we've seen empirical studies, research support that it might be helpful is for people maybe with jet lag or really those circadian issues that are adjusting to the time, the clock issue. It has a sedative property to it. And so that's why I think people have latched onto it. And they just, so it turns on endogenously or our body makes it and produces it um, itself naturally um when night comes on so it's really a night hormone it's not a sleep hormone but it kind of you know acts like it's it's telling your body okay you know this is the time this is the time that we're um supposed to be you know triggering going to sleep and so people have kind of latched on to that and thought this might be the answer and because of that you know slight sedative property people um might find it somewhat helpful and then it gets out there and you know anecdotal the, the word goes around empirically empirical studies have not um borne out that it is um effective for insomnia so you know but i am i try not to judge with medications in general so i ask patients what's your goal and so if they do find it helpful you know like i'm not like completely anti you know like there is a big placebo effect that that works with people so if it's working because of that fine. 10 milligrams is a bit of a lot. Um, we, we show even for the circadian, we can get it down to a half a milligram. Um, so at most, I, I would recommend maybe like three milligrams. Um, so I'm not completely anti if people find it's helpful for them or they don't want to get off of it. Um, but that's not my go-to. And I don't recommend it for somebody that's not you know already using it and finding it helpful. It will not come as a surprise to Sarah that I'm about to say this, but um, uh, I, uh, on a previous episode, we dove way into melatonin and its efficacy with her friend, Dr. Michael Grandner. If you want to go back into the archives of the show, uh, you want to be looking for an episode that mostly focused on the change to daylight saving time. Uh, and Michael and I spent ages getting into melatonin and talking about that. But it's interesting where every time I talk to a different sleep expert, they always shed a little bit more light on it. Like I remember talking to uh, one person who said, you know, the more melatonin you take, you're basically training your body to produce less of its own. And so mm -hmm. you end up getting into the situation. He, he compared it to, look, if I, if I have one beer, uh, you know, once a, once a week, then here's my level of intoxication. But if I have one beer every hour for a week, then here's my, and it takes a lot more to get me drunk, he says. So mm -hmm. he, he points out that, you know, you say 10 milligrams is a lot. Michael echoed the same thing a couple of weeks ago. And so the more you take, the less effective it's going to be because it's going to take more and more melatonin to get any kind of an effect. And, and Michael strenuously made the point a couple of weeks ago that the problem with melatonin is getting the dosage right and also nailing down the timing. And that's where so many things uh, go wrong for people when they just reach for the 10 milligram bottle. They pop one before they go to sleep and, and then they're surprised when it's not working. Yeah, oh, it is so tricky. I mean, it's even tricky for us as providers to kind of think about it. Really, we would need to, we use sleep onset as kind of our proxy for, for when we time it. But um, really, the only way is to actually draw people's blood and labs and look at like when the melatonin onset occurs and when it's peaking. And yeah, it's a very tricky thing to time just right. So um, 
that's why I think it's been very hard for even providers to be able to use it. Well, and so much of, of, and even the work that you're doing, the, the, the big study that you were talking about from, um, uh, CBT and, and menopause, mm -hmm. that, even that study, that goes back, what I want to say about five or six years now, that study. Yep. yep. And even that, I mean, that was an N of, I think, uh, 60 or so, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and there were a few other studies going on at that exact same time. In fact, there were two other NIH funded um, studies. One was um, telephone delivered CBTI for menopausal women. And there was another one that looked at kind of a shorter version of um, CBTI, like a one or two session versus the regular package. We all actually came to, which is very nice that um, science was able to reproduce. This is the way it, it should be that we're able to kind of back it up. And we all found very similar results and a, a very um, similar uh, effect size for um, using CBTI for insomnia in menopausal women. The reason that I bring up that study and, and the N of 60 is because, you know, you think about all the advances that have been made in sleep. And this is for this is mostly uh, for the listener. But by all means, Sarah, feel free to chime in on this is is you got to recognize sort of the limitations of of what's available to us. Yes, all kinds of advances have been made in technology. But I mean, you look at a sleep lab in the average hospital and you're looking at probably three to five beds. Uh, at the most, uh, and and one um, very attentive uh, sleep tech who's trying to mod monitor all of that that's going on. As Sarah talks about, if you're trying to monitor melatonin onset, there's a lot of blood draws involved, which becomes impractical. I'm reminded of the second episode of this show that we did with Dr. Adrian Owen, um, who primarily was interested in studying consciousness and coma patients. But then he recognized very quickly that there's not nearly as many people in a coma at any given time as there are people who are sleeping and sleeping people's brains exhibit a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same properties that of the brains as people in a coma. And so he thought, okay, it's much easier to get a much larger sample size if I just study sleeping people rather than wait until I can run across someone who's in a coma. And so it's the same with all of this. You got to look at the, the potential of what's there and what's possible to do on a large scale. And sometimes the large scale stuff just becomes impractical. Mm -hmm. Well, I give you an honorary PhD in uh, sleep medicine because, man, do you know your stuff? Uh, I guess after 30 years of doing this and, and taking this deep dive into it. But, yeah, it's true. I mean, um, the deep sleep, the slow wave sleep, um, we call it stage N3. Uh, it very much resembles what the brain waves look like in a coma. And so, um, you know, that's like the, the $10,000 pyramid question is like, why do we sleep? And, you know, and even as researchers, we're still trying to like figure out we have theories, but um, exactly the purpose of it, we all do it, you know, every, you know, every animal, every person, um, um, even cells tend to, to power down. So, so we, we know it's important, you know, but, but, but why we do it. And yeah, that, that stage three sleep is very um interesting the way, way your brain starts to look very much like it's uh, in a coma. Uh, little babies have a ton of it. So they, um, so there's different stages of sleep. I, I should back up that uh, we have N1, which is a very light stage. N2, which is kind of a middle stage. We get about 50%. Um, N3 is that deep stage. We only get about, you know, 20% of the night is, is N3. Um, 
as when, when we're babies and little and your brain is still developing, there's a lot more of it, say like 50%. And as we age, there's a lot less of it. And for some reason, we don't know why women have more than, than men. But if we sleep deprive healthy individuals uh, in a sleep lab, and then we look at the recovery sleep the next night, we'll see that they will their brain will make up and prioritize that deep N3 sleep. So we know there's something going on there that the brain is like popping people right into it, that they need to recover that particular stage. And so that stage seems to be pretty important, but um, yeah, it's just really sleep is so nuanced, right? There's so many aspects of it. Sarah, I'll give you this as a parting thought from me and then I'll get a parting thought from you as well. But uh, just a fun one, just strictly for your entertainment. Uh, my first sleep lab revealed, because you said, you know, we usually get about 20% uh, N3 sleep. My mm -hmm. first sleep lab result uh, revealed that in addition to the periodic limb movement disorder and the restless leg, blah, 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 um, I was getting 1% N3 sleep every night. So... Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah, that's, uh, and it can be scary. And so I, I would like to also part with this, that nowadays, all these devices like Fitbit and things like that, that track sleep, they track light and, and deep sleep. Do not freak out if you're not getting, like I said, if it's 20%. So even if you're getting less than that, I mean, 1% is pretty low, but something may have been, you know, that was one night, a sample of one night of your life. So I wouldn't like put too much effort, you know, too much thought, the, the more thought and worry you have about it, right? The worse it's, it's, it's getting ironically. So, um, we orthosomnia, just, it's a thing. Thanks to uh, our devices. Oh, oh, totally. So we just kind of have to roll with it and do not pay too much attention. We don't really know what those like deep versus, they don't share their algorithms of, of, of what those things mean. Um, so, so I tell people, you know, it, it might be helpful for, you know, measuring the duration, but, but what it's measuring in terms of, um, I'm assuming they're using heart rate. To, as, a, as a proxy there and, and movement. But um, typically we need to put those EEG, you need to sleep in a lab to know the stages of sleep. So that's really the only way. So, Sarah, I'm so glad you had time for this. Um, and it's funny that you talk about how much N3 sleep babies are getting because uh, on another monitor here in the studio, I'm, I'm watching my 20 month old have a nap um, and, and, you know, I'm watching on the incredibly creepy uh, parent cam and um, I, I like she amazes me. Obviously, sleep is not a genetic thing because while I've been struggling with insomnia for uh, nearly 50 years, uh, she busts out somewhere between 13 and 14 hours a night and right. then has uh, about a two hour nap during the day on top of it. And and. I look at the benefits that I see in her where at 20 months old, she's carrying on conversations with full sentences that are four, five, six, seven words long. And, and I just, okay, she's got her sleep game nailed. And mm -hmm. if I need evidence that sleep is a magical tool that I need to do better at mastering, I just look at her because that's all the evidence that I need right there. And I'm so grateful that uh, people like you are out there trying to make it easier for all kinds of populations. So thank you for making time for this. Yeah, great. I, I, it, was, it was a pleasure. I, I, I really enjoyed my time. There you go, Dr. Sarah Nowakowski. All of her information is waiting for you on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. You can just look up this episode and all the info will be there for you. We'll sneak it into the show notes as well, but I hear that not all podcast apps are good at displaying the show notes. So 
yeah, the website is always the easiest place to find it. All kinds of other things that you can find there as well. Helpful links, the contest page. You can leave a question there for our panel of sleep experts. Super easy way there to rate and review the show. You can leave us feedback. There's our social media profiles. There's a link where you can subscribe to the short version of this podcast as well. It's called the Snooze Button Express. It's the same information more like a highlights package. You know, when you tune into ESPN and they boil a three-hour baseball game down into about 90 seconds worth of highlights, that's what the Snooze Button Express is about. Um, it is not quite as full and thorough of a conversation, but there are always takeaways in there as well. Back Monday, next Monday, with another episode and a decision on what we're going to do about some kind of a chat room or message board or forum or something like that for bedheads to get together and talk each other through COVID-19 and coronavirus. Until then, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? Hey.